0: Welcome to The Great Conversation, Where Ideas Matter. Ideas can shape markets, but more importantly, they can change the world. I have, uh, I have been on a journey for quite some time to really understand the essence of what moves people. Moves people, uh, whether they're my family, whether they're my teams, whether they're my company. And uh, lately, and most poignantly, nations how do you move people and uh, that takes a level of engagement uh, that has been uh, the topic of conversations for eons most importantly though over the last 10 years as i've talked to ceos they have a level of angst they have a level of angst because they just don't feel that their company is prepared for the future they'll put on a good face but this level of engagement they're going to need to be agile in this new world is, uh, is overwhelming. So one of uh, the people I'd like to have always enjoyed talking to, who's been on his own journey to understand the same problem, if you will, or opportunity, if you look at it differently, is chemo acquaintance. Um, chemo was a speaker at one of our great conversations years back, and he was absolutely captivating. If you get a chance to have chemo uh, in your next event, uh, he will capture the imagination of your audience. But why? Why would he capture it? So we're going to get into what chemo's doing today, uniquely in this digital world we're in, And we're going to try to get to the essence of what he's found in his research and his engagements. Chemo, welcome to the great conversation. Thank you, Ron. It's an honor to be here. We, uh, the last time we talked, I was reminding him, he turned me on to a book about games, games for adults. And, uh, And I'm not going to mention the book right now. We can get into it later. But that gives you the playful nature of chemo. How does play come into activating the human tribe of an organization.
1: Oh, I you know, one of the one of the really wonderful windows that we can look at, you know, human motivation and what moves us is is by by you know, exploring the assumptions that we have. And one of the assumptions that I think a lot of people bring to work is that work is somehow the opposite of play. And and I think part of it comes down to the way we've looked at our nervous system. You know, we were taught that We were either in this fight or flight response or we're in a rest and digest response. And so for a number of reasons, we we tend to think of play as being something that is is in the opposition of work. It's something that has no no connection to work. It doesn't have any value. It's something that children do. Um, But really play, when you look at play, play is built into the circuitry of all mammals and all mammals need play and they need play as a way to prepare and to train for the unexpected. Play is a way that we, we kind of jump in and, and model how we would respond to new situations. We try on new identities, we try on new strategies. It's a wonderful way to break the seriousness that we often bring to work, which can be, for many people, it can be kind of paralyzing. So play is a beautiful window to, to look at how does a system really hold together in a way that people can enjoy it and find purpose and find uh, pathways for mastery? And I, I, I love looking at playgrounds and seeing what, is, what, is, what makes a good playground work. And a good playground works on the same play- principles that a really good company works on when they've developed a, a learning culture where people see paths of mastery and can manage risks and try new things
0: out and get social support and have
1: fun doing what they do.
0: You know, that's fascinating. Um, You and I were talking about this before we hit the record button, but uh, recently I was reading Yuval Harari's books. um, And Harari and Sapiens and Homo Deus talks about what makes our species unique. And one of them was uh, we have imagination. We can actually not only invent in our minds new worlds, but live according to the rules of that imagined world as well, which of course allows us to collectively harness tribal cultures, right? So imagination, and just recently, fascinating to me, Kimo, was a emergency management leader at a university telling me that one of the greatest challenges they have is a lack of imagination in their industry. They can't imagine these scenarios that have occurred and therefore they're unprepared for them. And you just nailed it to prepare. What you just said is to prepare for the unexpected, try new identities and get away from the stultifying uh, um, seriousness of work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and when, when you think about what we're really doing, like when we're playing and when we're, when we're using our imagination, that's one of the key advantages that we have that that I think a lot of people really aren't utilizing right now is we have the capacity to imagine desired futures. We have the capacity to create worlds that only exist in our mind and then make them into reality. And, and this is just something absolutely essential. And it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's kind of an interesting window into some of the challenges that I'm seeing groups facing right now is there was there was some wonderful research done in the 1960s by a guy named Ron Lippitt and so he was an organizational development specialist and he was looking at how executive teams kind of do strategy development and what he wanted to understand was he wanted to understand is there a sort of a, a structure behind successful planning for the future and so what he did is he made all of these recordings of executive groups going through their strategy development and through their, you know, their problem solving. And then he had these recordings transcribed by one of his students. And this student was very fortunately someone who was trained in psychology, who'd spent time working in a clinical psychology lab. And when he listened to the recordings, he came back to Ron Lippett and he said, I, I know I want I want you to listen to these recordings, listen to what happens to their voices when they start going into problem solving. And he said, just listen, a few minutes into the problem solving, you hear what's happening in their voices? Their voices are becoming strained. They're becoming tighter, narrower. All of these guys are under stress. They're all experiencing anxiety. And so what he found out through this process of investigating was that the way that we go about problem solving, often triggers people to go into a stress response because the way that we're doing problem solving often is assigning blame, either consciously or unconsciously. It's, it triggers people to go into, you know, either pointing the finger or trying to avoid the the finger pointed at them. And, and it's really destructive to being able to move forward as a group because people start to psychologically pull back in order to protect themselves. So what what he came up with, and and now this is used by Google and it's used by companies all over the world, is is he created this system called um, creating uh, uh, imagined futures. So doing a kind of imagined future as a group where instead of doing classical problem solving, they would say, how might we? And they would frame the question as a challenge statement. And just by that simple reframing, What what you did is you activated all these pro-social forces, and you acted all these forces of imagination, because what you're really asking is, how can we do something that we haven't done yet? What is that thing that we want to do? How could we? we? We might fail. We don't know. And it's up to us. It's up to us as a group to try to find a solution. And so it flips the problem solving from pointing fingers and blaming and psychological stress into a group that wants to collaborate, to come up with ideas and the ability for people to be seen and recognized in that. And it just completely transforms that dynamic. And I think it's this perfect parallel what we're talking about, about playfulness, agility, adaptation. So much of it is in how we frame, how we approach that as a group. And we can do it in ways that force people back and make people nervous or ways that invite people into the conversation and invite that conversation to be more open, more playful, more imaginative.
0: Akima, when you've done this for teams, how do you prepare them or do you for that, for that uh, session? How do you prepare them for that day of, of playfulness and imagined future? Or do you? Or do you surprise them with the opening? Uh, how, how do you do it? When I'm when I'm working, the thing that I the thing that I found out, and I've really,
1: I've really, you know, made a deep dive into this over the last few years, is that every time I work with a group, one of the most important things that I can do to prepare them, it, you know, especially if I want to prepare them to play, is I need them to feel safe. And, and you'll see this again, this is something that's common across all mammals. All mammals will play unless they feel they're under threat. And then that play circuit shuts off. So one of the things that I need to do when I'm starting with the group is I need to trigger an experience of psychological safety. Now, how, do, how can I do that? There's, there's lots of science behind this, but, but if you boil down the science of psychological safety, it really comes down to a, a kind of a, a fork in the road. And, and one of those forks leads to people who are gonna feel anxious, they're gonna feel under threat, they're gonna feel tired, they're gonna feel withdrawn. The other fork is gonna take them to feeling playful, open, curious, uh, energized. And the way that I point people down one fork or the other is if I can trigger the experience of feeling witnessed rather than judged or witnessed rather than evaluated, I'm gonna send them down that positive route. And if if I can give them the experience of feeling connected, That is that they have a voice and that they're working on something together rather than making them feel invisible, unseen, unheard, then I can send them down that positive positive route. And the mistake that I think so many people make when they're doing this work, whether it's preparing their teams to do innovative work together or whether it's just running a normal Zoom call, is they create situations in which people feel either evaluated or invisible. And that automatically triggers the stress responses that shut them off, physiologically shut them off from being able to be open, trusting, playful and communicative.
0: That fork of the road you're talking about, and I can just see you opening up a meeting with that experiment, with that playful activity, if you will, to get them to feel safe. Uh, Do you find that there could be roadblocks though that even a playful experiment opening up a meeting Would be constrained and/or unfortunately disrupted because of something going on in the culture that you haven't discovered yet. Oh yeah,
1: and and for me, it's not you know it's great if I can reach a playful state with them. You know that that's 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 wonderful. I don't need to start there though. What I need to start with is I need to start with reality, and and this is the essence of the witnessing. So if there are mixed feelings about the work and everybody in any significant relationship, you're going to have mixed feelings. It's really important to give a voice to both sides. So it's similar like in a, in a therapeutic context, you know, something that a really good therapist is going to recognize is they're going to recognize that the person who's come in to do this healing work or to do this growth, they have a conflict going on. There's a dilemma. One side of them wants to grow and wants to heal and wants to move forward. And one part of that person wants to be distant, wants to protect themselves, wants to do what they've done probably since they were a child in some way, to psychologically or physically keep themselves safe. And the only way to move forward is to really give a voice to both sides. So I want the part of people that may feel unsafe or may feel pessimistic or may feel disappointed, I, I need to give that a voice. I need to recognize that because there's a rational reason for that. And if I deny that, then then I'm denying the reality that someone's experiencing and they're gonna feel invisible and retreat even further. If I can bring reality onto the table first, that can be a very powerful way to set the ground to go in all kinds of different directions. And play is just one of them.
0: Yeah, you're you're a dream weaver starting with a nightmare
1: absolutely and a nightmare is a is a beautiful powerful experience if you don't run from it you know a nightmare is is a doorway into the unconscious it's a doorway into showing you that there is a conflict going on and if you can find a way to go in there's there're wonderful wisdom traditions around the world that, that that view that that dream work is as important as anything that we're going to do in our waking state because it's an opportunity if I'm in a nightmare, if it's an opportunity to come close to and make contact with the thing that is terrifying to me. And if I can do that, if I can, if I can face the monster in the dream state, in my nightmare, the monster is not going to destroy me, the monster is going to transform. It's a part of me that I'm, I'm in a battle with, or a part of my community that I'm in a battle with. And, and if I can come close to it and ask it what it has to teach me, then it has the possibility to transform and become energy that I
0: can use in any way that I want. It's a very, very powerful, important experience. Wow, we just tapped into something really powerful for you leaders listening today. Um, moving toward a fear uh, could be revelatory. Um, Kimo, um, Let's talk about a current, a present and current fear. Uh, And it's a real one. And that is our world has changed Mm
1: -hmm.
0: profoundly. Yes. Not um, with any change. It's not going backwards. Um, That's going to make us feel safe. It's running toward the disruption, running toward the fear. And it's happening on so many different levels. Um, You used to do your work within teams, in a building, in a room. You're not doing that anymore. Tell me how moving toward this disruption in your own life has taught you how to serve the same disruption in others.
1: Yeah, one of the things, you know, is a really powerful lesson from this last year is, you know, you have to look at your behavior and you have to know be open-minded about it that there's something that there is there's a wisdom in all the actions you take and and one of the key insights that i had from this last year was that if if i am repeating a behavior that doesn't serve me anymore um, it's not a bad habit it's a pattern it's something that i learned as an adaptation to, to some problem I had, to some threat I had earlier in life. And because I survived this long, I mean, I'm here, right? Then, then this pattern is somehow unconsciously validated. And, and it's very difficult for me to let go of that pattern until I feel safe enough to, to get into motion again. And so for me, a lot of my, my learning was that, wow, there's this whole level of anxiety and anxiety is just a product of uncertainty often. If I find any way to reduce that anxiety that I'm feeling, I open up the space to be able to make changes. And so that's what I'm bringing in when I'm working with a team. If I sit down with them remotely is, we have to first go after whatever uncertainty we have in the group and bring it out to the surface. Don't keep it in the dark. We wanna bring it out of the shadows and bring it into the light. Because if we can do that, and if we can start to witness each other, and we can start to pull out all kinds of wonderful techniques that lower the level of anxiety in the group and increase the level of what we call social engagement, all of that wonderful pipeline of being able to communicate our emotions and being able to receive and correctly understand other people's emotions, then we we create this this shift from attention and and a desire to stabilize the system, into mobilization. That is, we have the confidence to be able to try new things out, to move in different directions and adapt more playfully.
0: That's fantastic. Help me uh, understand, though, you, um, you can't necessarily have them in a room anymore. No. So how are you digitally transforming your interactions with them, to one, bring out the monster, two uh, look at it in such a way that I can feel safe to move on from the monster, the nightmare, to the dream. How are you doing that digitally today? What are the tools you're using and what have you learned?
1: Oh, my absolute favorite tool. I, I'll I'll start, I'll start from the top and, and, and maybe work down. My favorite tool is a virtual whiteboard tool called Miro, MiRO. Um, the reason that I love Miro is is what I can do with a team. And, and I can do this now. I can do this with a team that is, you know five people, or I can do this with a team of 200. What I can do is I can create a whiteboard space that I invite them all into virtually. We start our, our Zoom call or our MS Teams call, and then I send them the link to this virtual board. And what I can do is I can lay out like a discussion path where I invite them to contribute their ideas. I can invite them to contribute their experiences. So one way that I would start that maybe is I'll do like a, a four quadrant kind of retro with the team. I'll talk about their experience during the pandemic. What have you liked? What have you learned? What have you lacked? What have you longed for? I give them an opportunity to share their experience. And what I can see whether it's, you know again, five people or whether it's 250 people is very quickly, people are able to populate ideas and share their experience because it's, it's anonymous. There's no, there are no names attached to it when I send them an anonymous link. And very quickly within a space of 10 or 15 minutes, I can create like a snapshot, an x-ray of all of these hidden experiences within the team. And that triggers that psychological experience of being witnessed in the team. That triggers their ability to see that they're not alone in their experience. That triggers the sense that they are connected in some way. The team then can start to do pattern recognition. They they can do social validation, they're not alone. They can do pattern recognition. Wow, here's an area that a lot of us care about. And as I build that out over time, in my engagement, whether that's one day in a workshop or whether that's over a period of weeks or months, I can build on that conversation in a visual format that allows people to see the process of thinking rather than just the output of thinking. It allows me to give them a view on the process of decision making rather than just the outcome of decision making. And that transparency always includes a very, a really big boost in trust. And that process allows us to change the way that we do decision-making to invite more people in to take ownership over, over different parts of that process. And it invites us to increase the level of inclusion and diversity in the decision-making because instead of forcing everyone into a reactive mode where We're going into meetings, they're getting things thrown at them and they're suddenly having to make decisions. I can, with this visual whiteboard tool, I can let them go through this over time and people who may be introverted or who you know English might not be their first language, they have time to reflect and make a high level contribution. And so I can slow the pace of decision-making down but I can vastly increase the quality of decision-making and vastly increase the level of trust and, and the ability for people to, to opt in and take ownership. And that whole cycle uh, is just transformative for groups. It's very powerful.
0: I could see uh, for all of you listening, uh, I think I'm going to brainstorm with Kimo here about a way we can make that visceral. That is uh, all of you can experience how he does that in a very shortened format. I, I think I'm going to lobby for him after this call because I, uh, I don't know, I, I can pick a topic right now and grab four or five of you leaders. And in 15 minutes, we can feel and experience what Kimo's talking about. I'd love to do that one day, if possible, with Chemo. Kimo. Kimo, this has been a great conversation. This will not be a one and done. We'll follow this up. Uh, but help, help me understand, who would you invite to the round table, the fireplace, if you will, to have a great conversation that you'd like to listen to?
1: Oh, uh, two people that come to mind. The first one, I would really love to invite uh, uh, um, uh, a researcher scientist named Stephen Porges. He is a really brilliant thinker about the nature of the nervous system, how our nervous system evolved and how we can create the experience of safety together. He's really like the scientist of safety and he's really a beautiful, brilliant thinker. Um, Every time I listen to him, I have have ideas I can apply immediately into my teamwork that just make it more effective and more fun. Um, The other person I would bring in is, is, is a doctor named Gabor Mate, who is a brilliant, beautiful thinker on the blocks that we have to being authentic with each other the ways that we undermine our authenticity and and how we can overcome those. So I would bring those two people into a conversation. I think it would be just fascinating.
0: And what are you reading these days that you might turn us on to?
1: Hmm. Uh, I'm reading reading a couple of things right now. So I'm reading um, a book on remote work that was written by uh, um, two people who were in uh, a company that created Basecamp. So the book is called Remote, it was written in 2013 but it's a wonderful collection of i think ideas and mindsets that have aged very well um, they've aged really wonderfully and 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 really show that that there are these huge advantages to being remote that that all of us can make it make use of in our companies to make our work much more satisfying so yeah, that's a very practical one the other the other book that i've read um i've read recently i read alice in wonderland and alice in, <laughs> alice in wonderland is just a wonderful exploration of the na- the dreamlike nature of reality and and how much playfulness there is in our experience that's just below the surface
0: well i i think lewis carroll was high half the time when he was writing that don't you
1: <laughs> yeah it's pretty clear when he's in it but
0: <laughs> he's captured the he's captured the nature
1: of dreams really really well <laughs>
0: This has been a great conversation with the Kimo acquaintance. We will have him back, and uh, hopefully on a virtual whiteboard stash, uh, session. Uh, those of you who haven't read his bio, he's the co-founder of Move to Think and IQ Gemini, both centered on human development and team engagement. Looking forward to speaking to you again in the future, Kimo. I look forward to it, Ron. Thank you. <laughs>